0: This is episode 127 of Greater Than Code. And joining me today is my great friend, Janelle Klein.
1: Thanks, Avdi. And I'm here with Rain Hendricks.
2: And I'm here with my friend and one of the top five coolest people on this podcast today, Jessica Kerr. <laughs>
3: Thank you, Rain. Okay, okay. We have a really cool guest today. Amy Newell is Director of Engineering at Wistia, and she has been giving a talk about living and working with bipolar disorder. She has also eaten crickets in Mexico City, She slept under the stars in the Sahara Desert, she mugged a mugger in Budapest, and she wrote a book, and she's been to Paris six times. Amy has also hiked the Alps, lived on a sailboat, and she's a poet, and a stupendous badass, and she has fabulous boots! Amy, welcome to the show.
4: Thank you. Now I'm going to have to say really interesting things to live up to that bio. <laughs> I'm like...
2: Starting now. <laughs> now.
4: <I'm>... Now. <laughs> I'm really excited to be on the show and talk to you guys about, you know, anything you'd like to talk to me about, engineering, management, mental health and tech, suffering. I like to talk about suffering
3: in humans Mm -hmm.
4: and at work. I'm also, I'm working on a talk about varieties of suffering in the workplace and how to navigate those. Or, you know, I have a lot to say about boots
3: as well. So... (laughs) Uh, now I'm really curious what your superpower is and whether it has anything to do with suffering.
4: Or <laughs> <laughs> So yes, it actually does. So I was thinking about this. I was walking to work today and I was like, oh, they're going to ask me about my superpower. What am I going to say? I think this is the superpower that everybody actually has. Some people may have had less opportunity in their lives to practice it. I... I'm really good at sustaining a kind of hope and faith in the face of what feels like no hope and no faith. So I spend a lot of my time feeling depressed, and one of the symptoms of depression is kind of a hopelessness you know, like pessimism about the future. I'm also just naturally a pessimistic person. I tried in the past to become an optimist. Like there's that book learned optimism, uh, that Martin Seligman wrote. And I'm like, sure, I can just like become an, no, it does not work that way. I have never become an optimist. I still think that things are pretty much hopeless, but I have faith somehow that if I just take the next step and then the next step after that, and then the next step after that, that I will somehow like keep going. But everybody can do that. I think we're we're called upon to do that when we're experiencing a lot of suffering and we can't see the future very well. And I just get to do that a lot. So that's my superpower.
0: That's amazing.
3: Yeah. Keeping hope and hopelessness.
0: That's a really good one. I feel like that for a lot of people, when you are in suffering and hopelessness, people who are living in sort of hope and optimism can seem very inaccessible. And just foreign. And it's good to have people in the world who model taking steps forward when they're not full of hope because that's a lot more accessible.
3: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, like, become an optimist, get happy, then you'll have hope. It's not very practical.
4: Yeah, like, I'm just not going to get there ever. So, but I still want to live a valuable life and I still want to help other people live valuable lives, you know, no matter how pessimistic they feel about the future. I think there are a lot of things uh, in the world to feel pessimistic about. So yeah, I'm always a little baffled by the the, the really optimistic people who are like, oh, you know, we'll figure out global warming and we'll, you know, figure out, you know, the rise of authoritarian governments and, you know, we'll figure all this stuff out. I'm like, I don't, I don't, I really have no hope of that, but I'm still going to try anyway. (laughs)
2: I think that a lot of people, their hope comes from this, it's definitely true for me, that their hope comes from this feeling that things can be better, uh, that if they wait long enough or if they do the right things, that the situation will change, right? Is that what you're talking about, or is it something different for you? And especially, what if you don't have that feeling? How do you keep going in a situation where you don't feel like things can get better?
3: Hmm,
4: okay, that's a really good question. I would say I'm in that position a lot, not because there's anything at all wrong with my life. My life is just fantastic on like a lot of levels. <laughs> but um it's just because of the way my mind works that it feels like things really won't get better. You know, I think that there are a lot of reasons to keep going in the face of not feeling that things will necessarily get better. And that's because, you know, I have some hope. I think of ways that I've added value to the world already. And so I want to continue to be able to add value to the world in whatever way I can. And I think about experiences that I've had in the past that were actually great and that I may be able to have those in the future. So if you go to Paris and you go into a cafe, And you ask for an espresso, you get a really great espresso made by someone who really cares about their profession in like 30 seconds. And it costs one euro. And then you get to use the bathroom in the cafe, which otherwise you can't use. And the bars, they're like cafe bars and they're really beautiful. And so I have this very powerful memory of the last time I was in Paris going in and like getting an espresso and like that moment. I'm like, I could have more of those moments in the future as long as I like keep taking the next step forward you know, you don't have to go to Paris to get that moment, right? Like there are lots of those little moments along the way. And, you know, maybe it's like, I'm going to sound very gratitude journal here for a moment, but a day where I help an engineer solve a problem and they are grateful that I was able to help unblock them on something or, you know, like my kid doesn't slam the door. I have teenagers, so I... (laughs) if if there's a day where I have like an actual conversation with a child and they don't just slam the door in my face, like, (laughs) then, you know, there's those like piling up of moments that there there's the opportunity for more of those. So, So you
3: have evidence from your past that life doesn't always suck. And if you just keep going, there will be moments that don't suck. That is precisely it that I I'm able
4: to maintain, like, you know, it's, if you spend a lot of time in therapy, you know, one of the sort of cognitive behavioral therapy techniques, right, is like, all right, well, reality check, or like, you know, find evidence that goes against your belief that nothing will ever be good again. And so to reality check and say, well, here was a time where I thought nothing would ever be good again. And then I had good stuff since that time. So when I think about like this presentation I'm doing about suffering in the workplace, that that's like, you know, helping people reality check. Oh, you know, I produced a bug that caused an outage and now nothing will, you know, nothing will ever be good again. (laughs) Well, you know, you produced, you know, I mean, we all do that. Think about a time in the past where that happened and
3: things were okay after that. Like it was actually not the end of the world. My mantra for that kind of thing is for certain feelings never and always mean right now. Feels like never will it be good again. Right now, it's not good. Yeah.
0: Uh, so you you mentioned the the talk that you've been giving on suffering in the workplace. Can you talk a little bit more about that? And like, what what was the genesis of that talk?
4: What was the genesis of that talk? I'm not sure. I remember. So I manage a lot of engineers, and I talk to them a lot about what's going on in their day-to-day lives. And there's sort of these categories of things that come up that make people feel crappy at work, right? So there's uncertainty, you know, and especially in tech, there's often a lot of uncertainty, like oh, there's a strategy change and I don't know what my job will look like. Mm-hmm. Or we're on this big risky project and we don't know that it will be successful. And, and that causes a kind of pain that you have to kind of move through in order to continue to do your job productively. Failure, you know, another kind of pain that people experience. And then sort of, this feeling that I think, you know, gets talked about a lot in the tech community now, kind of under like the idea of like imposter syndrome or insufficiency, or I'm the only one who's struggling and everyone else is smarter than me. And I kind of categorize those as like something bad happened, something bad will happen, or I'm just bad. And to get productively through your work, you can't get rid of those kinds of suffering in the workplace. That's just inherent in like taking risks and being creative and producing work with other people that is of value in the world. So how do you kind of navigate that suffering to live with it and have it like not affect your productivity to the extent that you're unable to move forward? How do you take that next step? Um, so that's what I've been thinking about with that.
2: So what are the different forms that this suffering takes and, and what might be some of the causes?
4: I think, you know, so take like insufficiency, right? Just the idea that you're not as smart as everyone else oh, I don't understand React contexts. Everyone else around me understands how to use this and I'm behind and I will never catch up. I definitely don't understand React contexts because I I don't use React. But, um, (laughs) you know, the, the sort of rapid pace of like learning that's expected in tech, right, I think causes a lot of anxiety in people about keeping up, about not being smart enough. I think as you age also in Software. I know a lot of people who are aging and we're all like, oh, is my brain good enough to do this anymore? <laughs> so, you know, those are some examples of that kind of suffering failure. I think, you know, you're going to fail. Like if you're trying to do anything at all, so, you know, I had this revelation sometime in December, I think that I do a lot of hiring. So no matter how good your hiring process is and how carefully you vet people, it is inevitable that you will make some mistakes in hiring and that you will have to correct those mistakes. And that will feel like a failure, right? It causes pain, like, how could I have prevented this? What did I do wrong? Now I have all this pain in front of me to try and, like, right this wrong. (laughs) So other examples, you know, I was talking to an engineer. He was talking about how he... Felt really bad about code that he's produced in the past that he would kind of occasionally hear other people bad mouthing, as in, like, oh, yeah, that code base kind of sucks. And, you know, all our code bases kind of suck after a few years, right? (laughs) So, thinking about just like those kind of like daily kinds of pain that are just inherent in doing our work and how to move past them or just accept that you're going to feel that pain in the course of doing your work.
2: What about feeling like the work you're doing doesn't matter?
4: Yeah, you can be working on a project that you think matters in a culture that is not toxic and still feel these kinds of suffering that are just inherent in the work. But then there's like this broader realm of suffering around work, which is like one variety is my work doesn't matter. I'm not doing anything that's adding value to the world. Another whole set is like, I work in a toxic workplace and people are mean. And that's that's causing me pain.
2: When you say inherent in the work, what does that mean?
4: The baseline I go through is that suffering is inherent in being alive. So, you know, I, this is this is not something I came up with myself, right? This is this is like a long established train of thought that this is just you can't get rid of it. I also think that more specifically, it's inherent in the process of working with other people to creatively produce things in an atmosphere where you can't one hundred percent control your outcomes or other people's behavior. So I I do not believe there are workplaces that that you will never feel pain in. If you have a project that fails, feeling pain is one of the things that causes you to learn lessons about what not to do next time, right? Like, oh, that hurt. Next time, I don't want a branch that is long running for three months. And then I release in a big bang release because that was super painful. (laughs) There's this variety of talks that's like 13 things I learned that you should definitely not do. And we've all like heard those 13 things and then gone right ahead to do them anyway, because it's very hard to internalize a lesson unless you yourself have felt the pain of having done that thing. So, you know, I don't think you can actually like get better. Experience is, you know, the record of your failures and how much they hurt you.
3: <laughs> Amy, I want to ask about something you said really early, which was you talked about living a valuable life. Your goal was to live a valuable life. Not a happy one. It doesn't have to be
4: happy. Yes, it doesn't have to be a happy life. If my goal were to live a happy life, I would be kind of screwed. Um <laughs> I think I spent a long time thinking that that should be my goal. I think it's very American to think that 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 is our goal, you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. (laughs) I have given up the notion that I will become a generally happy person. My set point of happiness is extremely low. For me, what's helped me and I think most people have a thing in their life that they just kind of have to accept is not going to change and kind of figure out how to move on despite that or
1: will at
4: some point in their future. Right. You know, age and have, you know, hip replacements or who knows. Right. There will be something that you have to work around. That's just not going to change.
3: Um, I don't have to like it.
4: Yeah, yeah, you you just have to say, okay, well, what do I care about doing anyway? Like, what makes life worth living, despite the fact that, you know, so I have these very, like, odd experiences, where people will be like, are you having a good time? And I'll be like, yes, objectively, I see that this is a good time. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
3: i choose to define good time yeah i can see
2: how other people would think that this is a good time
4: (laughs) (laughs) and i i mean that like there are times that i'll look back on and be like oh you know i'm glad i did that that was objectively good but that doesn't mean i was like feeling good during that
2: time. (laughs) sometimes i think i'm supposed to be having fun but i'm not so now i feel worse (laughs) (laughs) Because I feel like something's wrong with me.
4: Right. Yeah. And like, you know, like, yeah. So how do you just accept that, you know, you cannot make yourself feel some other. I mean, there are a few tricks you can use to like kind of get yourself out of a headspace, you know, like, oh, go for a walk or think of three things you're grateful about. And they might move your headspace a little bit, you know, but you can't sort of sidestep or tell yourself not to feel a certain way. You can just kind of accept it and then not hold too tight, like not kind of grip it too tightly.
3: <laughs> not spiral it.
4: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I'm not not spiral.
3: I'm, I'm a terrible person, so I'm not happy.
4: Yeah. So and then eventually that changes, you know, I, our emotions are, are not fixed. They even... Even in the midst of like a very powerful negative emotion, like if you actually I do a lot of mindfulness. So if you actually like sit there and like are curious about what the negative emotion feels like, it doesn't feel the same all Mm -hmm. the time. It's actually moves. It changes, you know, sometimes it'll be like, oh, my heart hurts. Or sometimes it's mostly like, you know, I screwed this up. And you're like obsessing about the thought. So... You know, it changes and eventually it lifts, but you can't force that. There's no, you know, you can't force yourself to be happy if you're not feeling happy.
2: There's a really interesting thing that humans can do where we're usually participants in our own mental lives, but we can also be observers. We can also step out of it and go, oh, I'm feeling this way now. That's interesting.
4: Yes, and I think that's like really key to getting through like any kind of suffering or just even like mildly unpleasant experiences, like, you know, waiting in line at the TSA. Right. Right. <laughs> 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 um, yeah. That's it's, that actually, you know, tends to re- like, I hate it and it presents this obstacle for flying for me, which I do anyway, but that's a little beside the point that like observing mind which is like somehow like above and behind whatever, you know, like if you do any mindfulness training, people will talk about like the the waves on top of the ocean, but you're the ocean, right? Or the clouds that are obscuring the sky, but you're actually the sky. So to be able to like get into the sky and see what's happening in your mind and understand that you don't have control over it but you aren't it. You aren't whatever is happening in your mind.
0: I feel like as a society in general, but especially in software, uh, we're conditioned to jump very quickly to pauses, skipping, skipping over what I'm feeling, what, what the circumstances and going straight to you did this, or they did this to me. Uh, they, they, they hurt me. Um, this, this thing is terrible. You know, <laughs> my machine just crashed and, and and that's terrible and skip right on past I feel
3: and that observing and listening to yourself because sometimes I feel like nobody will ever understand me and then I remember that I can understand me and I can be that observer and see how I feel and and that helps sometimes
4: yeah, I think that's very true, that, that there there is a comfort in being able to step back and just be like, all right, well, this is the thing my mind is doing right now, and I can just watch it. Avdi, what you said about, you know, the tendency to jump to cause, I think a reason in the workplace, certainly, that it is valuable to get good at stepping back and seeing how you feel and just watching how you feel is is what we do with pain, if we don't take that moment to step back, is that some of us will turn it outward. You did something to me. Find someone else to blame, and that comes out in anger and all kinds of toxic behavior in the workplace. Or, you know, a lot of us will turn it inward, and then that's just, well, I'm a screw up. I can't do this. I hate myself. And neither of those are like, sort of like, you know, skillful ways to relate to the pain. If you give yourself like a little while to just feel the pain, like, ow, there was an outage, and, you know, I see these ways that I could have prevented it and I didn't, and that hurts. And just allow yourself to feel the hurt without having to do something, then you're Mm -hmm. much less likely, I think, to lash out at other people or to lash out at yourself for Mm -hmm. both both the original thing, that whatever is causing the pain, and for yourself for feeling so bad about it, which I think it's very easy to just be like, I shouldn't feel this bad about this.
1: Yeah, the word should is always bad. Yeah, basically. (laughs) been really interesting listening to this because I'm like the eternal optimist, unreachable idealist that lives in a little you know bubble of my own reality that is very different from the coping mechanisms that you're talking about. And the types of suffering when you live in that place are different types of suffering too. And I'm thinking about the types of things I do when I'm helping teams as well, are different. And one of the things I've been thinking about with in the context of teams is when we're anchored in a place of suffering and trying to find relief from our suffering, it disables our ability to get into a mindset of innovation in that I think when we're in a place of suffering and seeking relief from that, It's like we're in a negative and trying to get back to zero and all of our brain power is focused on threat detection (laughs) and, you know, these, these other kinds of processing of what's going on around us. How do we, how do I get out of this place of pain? And I live in this world of unicorns and rainbows and dreams And I pull people into this dream bubble of creativity and happiness. And so I have this crazy level of high that I can reach and like magnet people into this like super high, creative, excited state of like, let's make music together. Let's create together. Let's build dreams together. And it's a very different sort of place that I find like if I can shift people into that mode, that they also shift to a place where they find a uh, value that they can contribute. They feel special in being able to contribute. And that sometimes relieving that suffering can be providing a creative outlet for you know, something to do with it. I think about my own happiness and things that I've learned that make me happy. And it's not that I don't experience a lot of pain in my life. But I find that I find relief from suffering through understanding it, letting it flow through me, being able to find clarity of expression becomes a way to sort of release it. And so like poetry, art, music, those kinds of things create the satisfaction of finding clarity in the expression on the other side of suffering. And then you can kind of let it flow through you. And that once you expressed it clearly, it's kind of a way to let it go so that I can move back into, you know, happy dreamland. Again. <laughs> but I mean, I, I very much like live in that unreal high. I can hit like levels of high that most people can't. And I, I turn into giggly little seven-year-old.
4: <laughs> I I would like into your happy unicorn dreamland. <laughs> Let me in there. Yeah, I think the thing expressing the suffering is like a really important part of being able to move through it. And I think that's one of the things that, you know, I'm speaking about sort of specifically mental health, but also all kinds of invisible disabilities and all kinds of things that that might be in people's lives that are just really hard. One of the things that I talk about is how it's kind of stigma or a lot of toxicity in cultures about not being able to speak about those things in the workplace. It's counterproductive to sort of getting work done, right? Like there there's this false idea that you can leave that stuff out of the workplace, right? That you you like you come in as some kind of like blank slate where like all your messy crap is elsewhere. <laughs> well, even then a lot of the pain is directly related. Yes, that too. So you've got like all kinds of pain both outside that you're bringing in and pain that's caused in your workplace and the less you are able to express that clearly, the less productive you become the whole idea that we shouldn't speak openly about the ways that we feel pain, I think because it'll be a downer or because, you know, it's not appropriate. It's not professional. It's not good for people. Number one, it's also not good for business. You know, the the more employees have to cover what they're feeling at that takes energy. It's just utterly lost productivity, right? <laughs> So I feel very strongly that, you know, that kind of workplace is actually less productive than a workplace where someone can come in and be like, wow, I feel a lot of shame because of X. Because the second they even are able to name that, they mm-hmm. have, as you are saying, Janelle, they, they've they released their ability to, to move past it a little bit.
3: And then the whole team can learn from it.
4: Yes. And people will feel less alone as well, because then other people will say, oh, I also have that feeling.
0: So you, you are in a position where you actually get to have some influence over like what your developer culture. And I'm curious, what sort of things do you recommend to make a workplace safer for people to work through, like recognize their suffering and work through it rather than stuffing it down?
4: So, you know, I think one of the things as a leader is just really being able and taking the time to listen to developers with care and empathy. What's going on for you? Hey, you know, I know this just happened. Do you want to talk about how you feel about that? Like mm-hmm. so that people can express and move on after expressing the other thing that I think is really important is just being able to model, you know, as a leader, I don't have it all together. I'm feeling various kinds of pain. I think there's like a balance that I, I don't always get right, right? Where as a leader, I, it's not appropriate for me to dump my pain on people who are reporting to me, right? I, you know, I dump my pain upward on my boss, <laughs> you know, or outward to my therapist or my friends or, you know, all the other resources that I have. But for example, I'm taking three days off specifically for, you know, to take care of my mental health. So I'm not going around telling everybody, you know, oh, you know, I'm not like, grim detailing, like the grim details of my mental health, but I've told everybody, Hey, I'm going to be out for these three days for mental health reasons. So, you know, I talk openly about my therapist and that like is a way of creating a culture in which people feel comfortable talking about their own struggles because they see that people in positions
1: of leadership are able to do that and willing to do that. I feel like it's important to be human. To be someone that has feelings too. To be someone that has, you know, gone through challenges, that makes mistakes, that when we try and raise ourselves to a standard that is not human anymore, and hide those things to the extent that, oh, well, I don't have these things, you know, I've never screwed up production. I'm thinking about like when I wrote my book, I spent a lot of time telling stories about all the different things that I screwed up, and to me, that was a way to lead to create a open door of conversations. Of you know, it's okay to be yourself in all your shapes and colors, and you know, we all have all these things, and if we try and put a lid on that and mask and push down all of our emotions and feels and stuff. It's like, as you said, it's like this constant drain of energy. It's like lost productivity to, to hold that in. And I find that a lot of people just want to be seen if they're in pain and suffering, like being invisible in that just makes it worse. And just having someone to recognize and empathize with where you're at, that you feel like is on your side, makes all the difference in the world. Yeah, I think that's huge. Just people want to be seen for who
4: they really are and what's really going on with them. And when I think about to the extent that there is this kind of culture of like toxic masculinity and tech, right, that goes so wildly against what's actually needed to do that in your workplace. It's, you know, how productive are you? You know, who's the smartest? Who's the most productive? You know, who's got the most commits? All the messy stuff at life, in life is like, you know, maybe you have like a, you know, someone at home who's dealing with like all of that stuff for you. So you just get to come and just push through. Then that's a culture we have to move because it, it goes exactly against people getting to be seen in the workplace for where they're really at. And I think that when when we don't recognize people where they're really at, then, you know, not only does that feel terrible to them, but you're making decisions in the absence of really looking at reality, right? Like, say you have a team of four engineers, you know, and somebody just had a baby and, you know, somebody has like a sick parent and somebody has like, you know, a mental health thing. And being like, okay, if you are not dealing with the realities that people have lives, (laughs) then you're going to make poor business decisions because you're not looking at, at what you're really, you know, the team you really have to work with at that time. And people may try to, like, meet those demands despite what's actually going on for them. But that's, I think, where you get sort of disaffected, burned out demotivated people and then that makes your whole like problem as a business worse
2: (laughs) we've sort of been talking about things managers can do to uh, help alleviate some of this suffering at work and you might ask well why should managers do it and i think it's because i think they have the responsibility because they have the authority and the ability so they're the people who should do it Uh, But I want to tie this back to when you said earlier that there are forms of suffering that are inherent in the work itself. And so what that implies to me is that if we don't do anything, people will suffer in these ways. And so I think we have a responsibility to try to be proactive, to find ways to be active in alleviating that suffering. And so uh, we've been talking a lot about uh, what I like to call, bringing your whole self to work. Because if you have to leave parts of yourself at home, you feel alienated from parts of yourself. And we talked earlier about being connected to the work that you do and its impact on others, on the company, on the users. So that's being alienated from the product of your work. And there's also this idea of not feeling connected to other people that you work with. Uh, Janelle, you were talking earlier about bringing people into a place where they feel like they can create together. And then there's another one that we maybe haven't talked about as much, which is the suffering that comes from not feeling like you have control over the way that you work. In, in the way that we work, there's this feeling that we're the, the cliche is cogs in a machine, right? That we're tools or instruments, we're not treated as people, we're not given the ability to make decisions and to be creative. And so these sufferings that are inherent in the work, I think that's exactly right. And so I guess my question is, if it's true that we need to be proactive in, in trying to solve these problems, what are the things we ought to do? How do, how can we sort of find ways to ameliorate each of these things? Maybe so to give an example of feeling disconnected from the product of your work, maybe an answer there is be more open and explicit in honoring and appreciating the work that people do. You know, find ways within your team, within your process, within your culture, whether it's demos, whatever it is, some concrete things that you do that appreciate the work of other people what are concrete things that we can do that are like this that can address these sufferings?
4: Um, Okay. Yeah. Let me think about that. I I do think uh, appreciating other people and not just leadership appreciating, but coworkers really expressing appreciation for one another. I also think in a, in a really, you know, sort of healthy workplace culture, coworkers are jumping in to assist one another to kind of alleviate suffering. So I'm thinking of an example where, Someone made a mistake. It was a mistake that caused a a, some security stuff, and that person kind of froze at that point. And a coworker immediately jumped in and was like, "I got it." So I saw what I was what was happening, and I was like, "Hey, dude, it's going to be fine. I know this feels bad to you. I know, like, I've done this. I've had these things." happen. And you, I, I know how, I know how crappy you might be feeling right now, but I just want to assure you that this is going to be fine. And so the, I think the combination of having like a coworker jump in and just be like, I gotcha. Like, I know you're, you're in a bad spot right now. And then having like people from various angles also reassure, you can't get rid of it entirely. But it alleviates that pain and makes people feel kind of held in it. So I don't know that that was like specifically answering your question or not. So maybe feedback on if that yeah. was what you were
2: looking for. It was a big question. <laughs> yeah. uh, maybe we could try to attack it in parts and or talk about other things. So this idea that we can't bring our whole selves to work, that – we can't really be ourselves at work, that there are parts of us that we have to block or lock off or leave at home. I, I think you're right that the way to solve these problems is through people helping each other. I think that's. I hey, think you hit the core of it right there.
3: Ray, can I mention yeah. that it is easy to say bring your whole self to work when you are a white person who fits in just fine with programmers? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because maybe it's bring as much as we want to work mm-hmm. because we don't all fit in. Perfectly with all parts of ourselves, and that's okay too.
4: Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Like, I, I I think most people would look at me and how I am in my workplace and say, "Wow, Amy brings maybe more of herself than we need to see," right? <laughs> But I actually don't bring every single aspect of myself into the workplace. There are some like areas of my life that I, I prefer to keep private, you know, with a few exceptions. But yes, and particularly around like the issue of mental illness, right? So I am open about my bipolar disorder and I have been for years now. And that is a choice that I made, but it is not a choice without consequences, There is a stigma and there is a possibility that either in the past or in the future, I have or will be turned down for jobs just because someone saw something on my Twitter feed that was like, oh, wow, you know, we don't necessarily want those
3: jobs anyway, do you?
4: No, I don't. But like, I'm also in a position where if I'm out of work for three months, I can absorb that, right? I, I am in a position of privilege. And people who are like, well, why didn't she speak up about the sexual harassment? Well, because it's really risky to do that. (laughs) So I think, you know, we have to accept that everybody needs to assess their own risk tolerance and in terms of the consequences of bringing certain aspects of themselves to the workplace. And that we who are in positions of privilege have to make it as safe as possible for other people to bring as much of their selves to work as they want by making a little bit more space. Like I make more space for people who aren't directors of engineering to be like, oh yeah, I got to go to my therapist too. So yeah, making space for people with less privilege to have that, to get that as much as they can.
2: I, I think I need to be super clear here that when I say bringing your whole self to work, if you're not doing that, then that's not your fault you're not doing it because you're responding in some way that you think is, is adaptive to the challenges or the problems you see at work. And
3: there's also no should about mm -hmm. that. You're not failing if not bringing your whole self to work because you choose. When I to say
2: should, what I mean is that you should be able to. In that, the environment and work at, that's created at work should allow you to feel the safety and the comfort to do that. And if it doesn't, that's the fault of the people who create that environment. That's the fault of the people with power.
4: And as a person with relative power, certainly in my organization, it's incumbent upon me to model that and make more space for others. And I take that very seriously. (laughs) Like that's a thing I must do to live a life that I find valuable to be alive in. (laughs) You
2: know, so if, if we see that someone isn't doing that, what we should say is, Oh, I acknowledge that you're not and it's okay that you're not for you. Now, what can we do to make it so that you can?
4: Yeah, I do. I have to say I I had a conversation with someone, a guy engineer, a very good engineer who had a job offer in front of him. And I was like, well, how are they on diversity and inclusion? And he's like, I don't know, it's a bunch of white guys. And I was like, dude, you're in a position of power. And you can go wherever you want to go. And could you please like, step up? it's not that I would do that randomly to just like any person, but like it does really bug me when I see people who do have like relative power in the marketplace, not taking that seriously for the rest of us.
2: You know, all of these societal problems occur at work (laughs) and maybe they occur, especially at work because work is where we're forced to interact with people who otherwise we might choose not to. You can build your own social group of friends in a way that is, constructive and supportive. And you can't necessarily do that at work because you don't have control over who you work with.
4: Yeah. A lot of engineers have some control over who they work with, right? Because you know, if you're in a tight market, then I I spend a lot of time hiring. So if you're in a tight market, you actually can say, no, this culture is unacceptable Mm -hmm. to me. (laughs) I'm leaving. Really
2: blunt tools, right? It's like quit and find a new job. That's a pretty blunt instrument for picking who you work with.
4: Yeah, vote with your feet. And so, um, and not everybody, certainly by no means do all engineers have that blunt instrument. And one of the things I I think a lot about is the power differential in any organization between engineers who do have that ability to vote with their feet and all of the other people in the organization who maybe don't have the same kind of job opportunities and job market that engineers have, right? Right. So the kinds of tensions that can create between an engineering department, right, and other departments that, you know, there's more competition for getting the jobs. So they just they have less, you know, and they're they're paid less and they just have less market power. And really, again, as engineers thinking about, like, from our positions of privilege, how do we expand outward from just engineering has a good culture, to the whole company has a good culture and we're respecting the valuable work that everyone is doing.
1: What kind of things have you done to take some of the aspects of the engineering culture and the privilege to be able to influence that and bring those ideas and culture into other parts of the organization?
4: It's a disparity that has started to bother me more and more in my years in engineering and, you know, or even within engineering, right, you see it in terms of like the the layers of like, you know, well, if you're a kernel hacker, you know, versus if you, you know, work on WordPress sites, right, like the disparity in salaries and respect and autonomy that is provided like these various different kinds of engineers. <laughs> I'm trying to think like, what have I done? And thinking, obviously not enough. <laughs> so maybe that's, you know, when I think about, you know, what is the value I next have to provide in the world? How
3: is enough? I mean, not enough, because it hasn't magically changed the entire world. (laughs) 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 Yes, I will by pure force of
4: will magically change the entire world. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you know, you know, I never feel I've done enough to advance gender equality in tech either, you know, like, also, a- not your fault. <laughs> but, you know, as a woman in leadership, right, I feel, you know. As a abs- woman in leadership, you're advancing it, period. Fair enough. But, you know, I, I feel this increased burden. And maybe that's just a psychological thing that I should just let go of.
1: I feel like that sense of burden, though, is also what helps you to see these disparities that a lot of folks are Blind to like, you know, you're talking about just this differential in, in status between the kernel hacker and the WordPress engineer. And there's differences in salaries and things, right? But there's social ranking systems that are in people's heads that are unspoken that affect how we treat one another, how we see one another and being able to see those things. And also see the influence that we have in the engineering world because of market power, as you said, you've got options, you've got choices. And so engineers have a phenomenal amount of influence to impact the social world. And by you kind of carrying this burden and seeing those things and raising visibility of those things to others, I feel like you just providing a lens, helping other people to see those disparities is a first step in shifting behavior dynamics. If I went up and I was talking to a WordPress developer and had like a picture in my head of, oh you're not a real developer because you hack WordPress sites, right? And if I recognize that in myself, that feeling, then maybe I could do something different then of going out of my way to look for cool things or doing special skills they have and respond with with kindness and appreciation and you know just respond differently just by recognizing those dynamics because it's it's like all the undercurrent unspoken stuff like there's this sense of suffering that comes from reacting to how you feel you're seeing in the world, right? Like I walk into a room and I have a perception of how all these other people see me. And I've got like all these mirrors in my head that are like reflections of myself. And before anyone says anything, just all those unspoken inputs, all my past history of times people have said things to me, I'm reacting to that, right? I'm reacting to that burden. I'm shutting myself down in response to how I believe people see me, whether it's real or not. And some of that is very real. Some of that, like social ranking things of cultural dynamics of how we're treated, of what's acceptable of ways to be, we respond to just, you know, out of human nature. You're in a particular cultural group that you want to fit into and you get a read on what the expected social norms are, what's okay in terms of a way to be and you respond to it, and you shut parts of yourself down, and you don't talk about the things that aren't okay to talk about. And it's the people that step outside the already established norms that set and change culture. It's, it's having the courage and the strength and the confidence within yourself to be an example, even if you are kind of in dissonance a bit with a culture that shifts the norm of the whole. And I feel like when it comes to hiring, bringing some people on the team that embody the type of culture that you're trying to create, that aren't afraid to kind of step out and be themselves independent of what context they're in, help create those kind of influence and shaping norms. And you calling people out that are in a leadership position of a place of privilege and saying, hey, in this position of influence, don't we have a responsibility? If anyone has a responsibility to make the world to create and influence the world, the people that have that real power is what you know, you're recognizing. So I mean, I respect you a lot for carrying that burden and helping to make those things visible. I mean, I think the visibility is what you bring.
4: Thank you. I feel better about myself now. you uh, It's the, the worker solidarity. <laughs> yeah, I think it's an ongoing effort. And there's in some sense no way to do enough, right? You just you accept what you can do. People come to me a lot with advice or, hey, can you connect with this woman who's entering, you know, who's trying to get into tech? And for a long time, my inclination was like, yes, I have to do this. I have to do this. And I have to do this. I'm in this position, I have to help as many people as possible. But now I'm like, well, I have to put my own oxygen mask on first, right? And so I'm more and more saying, hey, I can't, but so and so could let me hook you up with them. Or, you know, trying to like bring more people into the position where they're being asked for advice, and connections, and all of the stuff that you can do to sort of change the culture and you know, make it more diverse and inclusive, because I can't do every single one of these things myself.
0: Yeah, I just want to say to the to, the, to your point about encouraging white guys in tech to use their relative power to pull dire- organizations in a, in a direction. You know, by by being a little bit choosy about well, hey, you know that 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 team looks like a mon- monoculture. It's the right thing to do, but also monocultures are boring. And we don't realize how boring they are when we get used to them, like when they're the only thing that we've ever been in. We don't realize how suboptimal they are because, you know, we're used to monocultures because it's a monoculture of monocultures. Once you're part of an organization that has more diversity to it and has people from a lot of different backgrounds, it's more fun. It's more supportive. It's richer. It's a richer experience. Um, and richer experiences produce richer products
2: and and richer richer services
0: and richer people. You know, I'm not going to come in here and say like, well, you should do this because it's, you know, because business case, it's also just the right thing to do. But I guess what I'm coming against here is the idea that like you might be shortchanging yourself, a life changing career experience by choosing, you know, choosing a diverse team over a a monoculture at some, some, um, you know, you know, exciting company. Now, now you're gonna be making the better choice for your career too
4: yeah I think that's a really good point. and I want to address what you said about, well, it's not just about the business case, right? It's also the right thing to do for people. I think one of the things that as I've advanced in management that I've had to really press against because I'm like, I'm not an architect, right? i, I I'm not. One of those engineering managers who are like, yeah, I still like to get my hands in the code because I'm, you know, you know, and more power to those people if they can somehow do both of those jobs adequately. But one of the things I feel pressure, particularly as a woman and particularly as a manager is, you know, like the sense that maybe I'm just like coddling engineers because I care about their feelings or too busy trying to save the world to really be taking into account the fact that businesses need to be profitable, you know, or like, you know, building value towards IPOs or whatever those hyper growth companies are trying to do. Those things are not in conflict. Being kind to the people who report to you is not in conflict with those people being productive, it's actually, like, leads to those people being productive. And I just, I, I truly don't understand how, like, do people not understand how humans work? That they think that being unkind and dehumanizing leads to better products? <laughs> it, it can't.
0: There there was this thing that I used to experience. So I was, I was homeschooled all through um, my childhood. And there was this thing that I used to experience where people would be like, well, how did you learn to deal with bullying? (laughs) And I'm like, I didn't learn to deal with it. I learned to look at it and say, that's unacceptable. I'm not going to be here if there's going to be bullying going on. (laughs) And that's also a statement of, you know, that's also a statement of my enormous, you know, power in society just from uh, just from various accidents. But, you know, the point there is there's this sort of line of thought that you see sometimes that's like, I experienced toxicity, and now I'm successful. Therefore, toxicity leads to success, or is unavoidable. And none of those things are true. They're part of a particular game that maybe you never saw, out, saw the outside of that game because you, you were born and raised in it. But there are more games.
2: Yeah. For me, I, I think there's a, a selection process that happens Maybe if, if you're familiar with Chomsky's Manufacturing Consent, like why is the media the way it is? It's because if you get to be an editor of a major newspaper, you act a certain way. And if you don't act that way, you don't get that job. Why are so many CEOs, uh, what's the word? Uh, psychopaths. It's because if you're not, you don't get that job. It's harder to get that job. There's selection pressures all throughout this system. And I think it's harder to become a higher level manager who is kind. I think if you get to that position it's just there are fewer of you around.
4: Uh yeah, it's not you know, that's changing now, but it's not what's kind of, you know, privileged in engineering management culture necessarily. There's more of this like metrics-based approach to everything, including sort of human productive output in engineering that I think goes against a kind of you know more empathy driven approach to management. And it's not that I'm against metrics, uh, but I, I think they often measure, you know, for example, just the very basic like measuring number of commits that various engineers produce every day, right? Or how many PRs have you closed? Well, maybe you're an engineer who is spending a lot of time mentoring someone else, answering other people's questions, and unblocking other people. And that is not reflected in these metrics. You don't get credit for that, right? You get credit for writing code. I, as opposed to credit for advocating for the deletion of some code or <laughs> credit for saying this feature could be better in this way or is going to cause problems in this way. So let's not even make that feature. We had an engineer who uh, recently worked really hard on uh, on a feature and then something happened which changed sort of uh, the goals of the, the product and he was like, "The right thing to do is not ship this feature, okay? We should this feature is no longer relevant. It's done. I worked very hard on it, but the right thing to do is just like pull it completely. <laughs> you know, so finding ways as a manager to, I think give people, you know value and give people credit for the ways they contribute that are not like metric like can cannot be measured by metrics.
0: Yeah, that is important.
2: Can we spend like a minute or two talking about bipolar disorder? Because I have a history of that in my family and I've never been formally diagnosed and I wanted to talk about it a little bit.
4: Sure. Yeah. So I'm not a doctor. I cannot diagnose you. A uh, Standard disclaimer. Um, uh, I have bipolar type 2 uh, that for me and everybody experiences different constellations of symptoms over their lifetimes, obviously. But um, I uh, spend about 80% of my days depressed. Um, (laughs) So, um, and then there's like maybe like 5% of the time that I'm in a state of, of hypomania. So that could look like I just feel kind of productive and focused and like a normal human being for once. It could look like I'm really kind of irritable and I just want to jump out of my skin all the time. I have like telltale signs. Like if I'm like feeling a little hypomanic, I'll like snap my fingers a lot. And my husband will be like, oh honey, you're snapping. Do you want to like take a Klonophen and go to bed early?
3: <laughs>
4: you know, I, there's a significant component of anxiety there. That is kind of my, has been my experience. I'm also treatment resistant. So I've been on a lot of different meds and many people have better experiences with meds than I have had. I still have a really hard time despite having tried lots of medications out there, which isn't to say that people shouldn't try medications. But a lot of people with type 2 bipolar especially end up diagnosed as major depressive because they feel fine when they're hypomanic. Their doctor may never see them in that state. So they might end up on antidepressants when mood stabilizers might be better for them. I wasn't diagnosed with bipolar until I was 37. (laughs) So I just somehow, it flew under the radar. Like, you know, like if someone had ever been like, did you write a book in a week and a half when you were 17? I would have been like, oh yeah, I totally did that.
2: (laughs) Cool, so I'm actually on track because I'm
4: 35. Yeah, Yeah. so, um, you know, I would say, I think anybody with a history of depression should probably ask their doctor, like who's ever felt like a kind of up- should ask their doctor. Mm-hmm. Like I don't know, do you think it could be this other thing instead? But so I,
1: I hope that was helpful. I, but,
2: I had three specific questions because I know we're gonna wrap up soon. The first one is if people are thinking, hey, maybe that's something that I might have, what should they look for to to try to figure out whether it's something they should pursue?
4: Um I think they should um talk to a psychiatrist and raise that as a question with a psychiatrist. Hey, I've I've heard About bipolar disorder. I'm wondering, you know, maybe, you know, I have a history. There are like, you know, lists of symptoms on the internet that you can look at, print that out and bring it to your doc. Hey, I've I've had these things. That's the first thing I think, you know, find a doctor to help you diagnose it, but bring it up to them because they may not bring it up themselves.
2: And then the second question, and I think actually I can only remember the second question now is, is there anything you can suggest for people who are starting to get into treatment, who have seen a you know a psychiatrist who have been diagnosed in terms of how to find the right psychiatrist, how to find the right medication, how to deal with their psychiatrist and work with them more effectively, that sort of thing?
4: Tracking your moods—that's like a pretty basic thing. I use just a little daily mood tracker on my phone, so I can see sort of where I'm at from day to day. Having patience—it uh, can take a really long time to find a medication or a combination of medications that work, and that's you know super frustrating. But having patience, and I, I think finding a doctor who is really willing to be a partner with you, right in mental health, even more so than in other areas of medicine, the disparity between the doctor who's telling you what you should do and how to be a good patient and your lived experience as a person with a mental illness can be huge and unpleasant. You know, I have said to a doctor, and this is not to slag on my doctors in any way, but I'm um, oh, I think this medication is causing X in me and have the response been, well, the literature states. So, And I'm like, sure, but have you been on this med? Was the literature on this medication? So really finding a doctor who will like value your lived experience that you're bringing and your own treatment goals in terms of what is the life you want to live? And how do you want to get there? And what trade-offs are you willing to make? You know, are you willing to be on a medication that might make you gain 40 pounds and mess up your lipid profile? Are you willing to be on a medication that might do X, Y, or Z? What's important in your life and living a good life and finding doctors who will respond to that?
0: There's a piece too um, that um, I don't want to speak for you, but I feel like it's come up. uh, We've we've talked about this, uh, you and I, from time to time. And one of the things that I've heard from you, maybe not in so many words, but it's there is like, is the idea that Also, there isn't like a fix like there's not like, okay, we found the right set of of medications and practices or something like that. It's just it's it's would you say it's like it's more of a journey or something like that?
4: Yeah, it's definitely more of a journey. I mean, for some people, you know, I think there's like a subset of people who can just go on lithium, right? And then as long as they take their lithium, they're, they're, they're really pretty much okay. I think that is a, a small subset and that a lot of us are really on a journey to just to live the best lives we can with the symptoms we have.
2: Well, that was really helpful for me. So maybe it'll also be helpful for other people. So thank you very much.
3: You're welcome.
0: Okay. Oh, thank you.
2: Reflections time.
3: One of the things that I heard in this episode was that there's a framework for dealing with suffering, because while we want to avoid unnecessary suffering, some of it's just life. And so we can work on alleviating it. And the first step is a separation of concerns between observing the feeling and deciding what, if anything, to do about it. And that by itself, that's helpful right there.
1: One of the things you said that really jumped out at me was that, do people not understand how humans work? And we have this, you know, idea, this culture that is sort of bred in the management world of that dehumanizing people is somehow a better way to go to increase productivity by cracking the whip, I guess you could say. And in truth, these two things are not at odds with one another. We can be kind. We can help people to feel supported as human beings in the world. And by supporting people, we can actually end up with a better, healthier, more productive organization.
0: One of the things that stuck with me the most was the discussion of, of kindness in the workplace and kindness in our power structures. And I feel like in many ways, I'm sort of a poster child for the person that ought to fit in, into the traditional and ought to be just fine in a traditional software organization. And, you know, or, or that I should have learned over time to fit into the traditional software organization. And in truth, you know, what I found is that a lot of it just still is painful. A lot of the the traditional assumptions about how we're supposed to work with each other and how we're supposed to manage each other is just painful. It's demoralizing and it's depressing and it's hurtful. And, you know, this, this stuff, being kind, learning kindness. And being skillful with, with suffering and emotions, it's not just about supporting the people that have mental illness or supporting the people that are marginalized or supporting the people that are every category you want to come up with, subcategory you want to come up with. It helps it, it makes everything better. And, and if that's not obvious yet, it's probably only not obvious because you haven't experienced it yet.
2: Yeah. Okay. I think I'm going to have to have a few smaller reflections because this has been a lot for me. Janelle, uh, I saw a tweet yesterday responding to someone being a jerk that said, I don't know how to convince you to care about other people. And for me, that's one of the biggest challenges that we have. How do you convince people to care about other people if they don't? I also keep coming back to this idea that work implies suffering, that there is some suffering inherent in the work. And this question about, should we say should or not? And for me, the problem of suffering has – there are two important questions, and one has a very easy answer, and one has a really hard answer. The question with the easy answer is, what kind of a problem is this suffering? And the answer is, it's an ethical problem. And so when I say should, what I mean is we have a moral obligation to reduce suffering. Uh, We ought to reduce suffering. And then the question with the really hard answer is, okay, how do we do that? I think the obligation to reduce suffering uh, is shared by all of us, but not equally. Uh, I think the people with the power to reduce suffering have more of an obligation. I also think the people that are creating the suffering have more of an obligation. Um, but that's about as far as I've gotten on that.
4: I think the thing that that I'm now thinking a lot about was a little bit of a, a tangent in the conversation as a whole. But when we were talking about disparities amongst different types of engineers and between engineering and other departments in tech companies and what I could be doing how I can, you know, address that more, I think, in my work in engineering leadership. And so that's something that I want to think about more. I don't have really good answers for that right now. I know, Janelle, you were like, well, you know, even calling our attention to the fact that these things exist (laughs) is helpful. And so thinking about how I can do more of that, right? Yeah, I guess that's the kind of thing that I'm most remembering to think more on going forward.
0: Excellent. Well, Amy, thank you so much.
4: You're very your welcome. Comments. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it was really great to have you on the show. Uh, it was
3: re- really great to be on the show. <laughs> so y'all, if you want to have more conversations like this, you can join our Slack channel, the Greater Than Code Slack, which is very nice and not too high volume, and everyone is super, super kind to each other. If you just give at least a dollar to our Patreon at patreon.com slash greater than code. Thank you.